Amen. Good morning. My name is Ray Brandon. Good morning to those of you that are at home. Um, we are going to read in several places uh, in our scriptures this morning. Um, we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, and then 1 Timothy chapter, 5, chapter 1, verse 5, and then 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. We'll put the, the words up on the screen. It may be easier for you to follow um, by looking on the screen. And those of you that are in the room and, and at home, um, you can take your Bibles and turn to the book of Nehemiah. That's where we're going to go this morning, the book of of Nehemiah. So um, follow along on the screen and you take your Bibles and turn to the book of, of Nehemiah. Thank you, worship team. Um, their harmony sounded fantastic. I almost, I, I was sitting here and um, the pulpit was blocking my view of John. So a good thing I kind of peered around because I was like, oh, the harmony just sounds fantastic. And I almost said, that's a great job, girls. But I didn't notice John was singing too. And that just blessed my heart. That was wonderful. Um, so thank you, worship team, for all the time that you put in to, uh, to raise our spirits and to lift the word of God in song and to, um, to, to listen to the scriptures, uh, to call us to worship, to remind us what, of what we believe um, is, uh, is a wonderful, wonderful task. So we thank you um, for leading us in worship and preparing our hearts to worship through the word of God this morning. Let's turn our, our hearts and our minds to the Word of God. And one more thing as we, we get started. Let's just be reminded um, that we get to be in this place, right? Whether you're here, you're worshiping at home via online, um, let's just allow us to settle and to be here, to be present, right? This, this is a unique time. God says that when God's people are gathered together in a room like this, the Spirit of God is here. The church is not our walls, not the two-by-fours and drywall and ductwork, but rather it's the, the church is the living people of God. And when the living people of God gather together as those that are called out publicly like this, um, God does something that he does that's different. The Word of God is the same whether you're at home alone or you're here, but he does something differently when his church is gathered together. So let us remind ourselves of the sacred nature of the gathering of God's people and that this is something that happens once a week and just press other things out. Um, let your to-do list drop off. Um, you have no responsibilities in this moment except to be present in this place before God and each other as the church. And so we will sit and we're going to drink deeply from the word of God and we're going to allow all the other things to just, they'll come back, they'll load up as soon as you walk out that door. Trust me, they'll all be there. Um, so let's just set them aside and just drink deeply from God's word. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humbleness and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in a bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, that you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, um, we are going to continue our series um, in just simply just entitled Household. And the title of this message is a little different than what is um, in the, the, the Northbridge app. Um, it's called Building Households That Work. Building Households um, That Work. In 2017, um, there was a particular political individual, and, and uh, I'm going to use this, this quote in this illustration, um, not to be political, okay? So let's, you know, let's set politics um, aside for a moment and just understand the nature of this. You think, oh, this is, this is politically motivated. If you think that, you're wrong, okay? So let me just, okay, so, so it was a, an individual that um, was, was on one side of the political spectrum being questioned by another individual on the other side of the political spectrum. Um, this person um, who is being questioned is known for her faith. The, the person that was questioning is not known for faith at all. And the person that was questioning the individual said this. Here's the quote. The dogma lives loudly within you. Yeah, that was said three years ago. The dogma lives loudly within you. What was she saying about this other individual? Well, she was saying, I, I can see clearly that from what, what you, that all the things you believe, that there's something pressing, right? There's a faith. The word dogma, right? That's, that's, not, a, like, that's not a popular wor word. We don't use that. Um, word, unless we're speaking about particular things, at least in the general public. Um, it's, a, it's a faith word. Oftentimes it's used in a derogatory sense. Um, I don't really know necessarily the, the sense of this. If it was derogatory or not, that would be to question the motive uh, or to understand the motive, which I don't. But yet it was, it was, it was said, the dogma lives loudly within you. Uh, theologians and philosophers, um, cultural commentators... They all agree on certain things, and it's an interesting process. Um, the, the process is we've gone through modernity, the, the product of the Enlightenment, and um, there have been substantial blessings of that. But as in every age, um, there, that there are people that depart from the living truth of the Word of God, and we've seen a, a, a massive departure in the age of enlightenment, the modern age. Um, on the end of the modern age, uh, shorter than the modern age, by far shorter, has been the postmodern era, postmodernity. Postmodernity, modernity said that, that, that truth is objective, it's discoverable, and that we can, we can understand it. It's empirically discoverable, and we can understand it. Postmodernity said, well, all truth is relative. 
We find truth located not in something outside of ourself that is empirically discoverable, but rather truth is located inside ourselves and all truth is relative. It was a deconstruction of the Enlightenment, um, but it was in its deconstruction could not last. We are in really exciting days. I am optimistic for the future today because we're in an exciting day because um, cultural commentators, philosophers, theologians agree that we are actually moving past modernity. We are in post-post-modernity in which we've come back now to objective truth, but it's a different kind of objective truth. And I think this, this quote is a quote that is really important for us because there is objective truth in the secular world outside of us. And we live as a church at this unique time in history um, that is just pregnant with potential and it, there's all, everything. The thing that is constant around us is change. And things are changing. Here, here's what the philosophers are saying about what's next. Is that there is a dogma or there is an orthodoxy that will stand. We just don't know what it is. Do, do you understand that? So, so there are certain things that, that the secular world is saying, these are true. The struggle with the things that, that the secular world is saying, these are true, is that it is an extension or it's a borrowing of the tools of post-modernity. It's a further deconstruction. It's, it's, it's taking the tools of post-modernity and adding gasoline. It becomes a solvent in which... Everything has to be now, everything has to be deconstructed down to the base. You see, here's, here's what secular, the secular world will tolerate. Um, they will tolerate anything that's nominal, but they will not tolerate truth that runs directly contrary now with their objective truth, right? There was empirical truth, there was relative truth, now there is secular truth that is, that is claiming to be objective. It is absolutely anti-gospel and anti-God. Secular post-post-modernity is happy with nominal Christians. See, that's, that's, that's where this quote is so important. Because it will not be happy when the dogma lives loudly within you. And what philosophers and cultural commentators and theologians um, say is that there's going to be an orthodoxy that lives after this. There has to be. It's just what kind will it be? Will it be a secular orthodoxy? Will it be a Muslim orthodoxy? A Buddhist orthodoxy? A Christian orthodoxy? orthodoxy. We don't know. Such was the time at Nehemiah. Nehemiah, it was a man who was in a foreign land. He was one of the exiles. It was a time of change. There would have been great promise in the Old Testament of a kingdom that would last forever 
And there was great disappointment when the people of Israel were led away multiple times, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom in multiple waves into captivity for 70 years. And then there was a decree through various events, a decree by a secular king that Israel could go back and they could begin to rebuild their place of worship. Now, this, this king had rebuilt many different, all kinds of, um, of, of all kinds of places of worship to many different gods. The Israelite God was just another one of them. But this was hope. And so the children of Israel began to return. You see, Nehemiah is a, a book. It's not simply a book about a building program. Um, so we open up the Nehemiah and say, are we going into a building program? No, we're not. But it's a rebuilding program. There's a lot of parallels to First and Second Timothy, the series that we're in, building households, and this rebuilding of the household of God, because that's the program here. It's not something physical, although we see physical things built, but rather it is the rebuilding of a people during these times of great change and great turmoil. And that's what I want to look, and, and there's, there's value in the way that we're studying the, the New Testament, and there's, there's value in what we're going to do today as we look at the entire book of Nehemiah, because I want you to see the whole story of the rebuilding of this household. I want you to understand some key elements, and so we're, I'm going to walk through the scriptures. This is going to be different, so I'm going to walk through the scriptures with you so that you can see the flow of this. Now, this doesn't make for great points. You know, the, the, the story, when you tell a story, and you're telling a story to somebody at work, you don't say, hey, here's my story, and let me give you the three points. You just tell the story, and they get the point, right? They, they, they get the point. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the outline of the book, and then I'm going to give you the point that we're driving towards this morning. Because I don't have a lot of points. I have a story, okay, and one goal, right? So we're going to look through this. The thing that I want you to ask is just to ask the Spirit of God to work on your heart because that's what stories do. The stories allow the Spirit of God to speak to us. So here's, here's the book, and we have, we have the outline of the book. So if you're taking notes, you can write these points down, but they're not my points this morning. Um, they just will give you an organization of the book. So we have... Um, we have Here's how the book is broken up. Chapter 1 is Nehemiah accepting the call of God. Then chapters 2 through 6, um, we have where Nehemiah completes the work of building the wall. And he go, undergoes these certain kinds of tests. So it's Nehemiah's chapter 2 through 6 is, is building the wall. And we're going to see that, that he's tested. And then chapters 7 through 13 is organizing the people for worship. Organizing the people for worship. And that's really the point. The whole point of this is that there's a lot of work to be done in order for God's people to worship. All right? So there's, there's one point in this that they're just going to say, well, there's work to be done. 
But the point of the work is worship. So here is where I am driving this morning. It's this one question. I want you to keep this one question. If you're, um, if you're taking notes, you can write this one question down. So just we'll leave it up for, for a second. Um, how will you respond to God's call to do the work for God's people to worship him? As we walk through this book, how will you respond to God's call to do the work for God's people to worship him. Dear Heavenly Father, as we go to you this morning, we just ask that you would work in our hearts, work in our lives, um, help us to see what you have for us this morning. Help me to get through this book this morning, to tell this story clearly as you would want it to be told from your word. Uh, We thank you for Christ, who we see in this book. We see the reflection of Jesus having done the work so that worship is possible. Oh, Lord, may we, in our, our efforts, in our character, be a reflection of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so the book of Nehemiah opens up. And it says, the, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Um, Nehemiah literally means um, God's, God is my consolation. God is my consolation. And, and his father means God is hidden. You know, names sometimes in the Bible have significance, not always, but here I think they do. Um, Nehemiah's father had gone through this time where God was hidden. And so he, they have a child. Um, congratulations to all of those that had children. And they name this child, God is my consolation. Um, by the way, we're talking about households. It's an amazing thing when you look through history, not just biblical history, but all of history, that where Christians are, where Christianity lives, families flourish families flourish. In many ways, that's what this book is about. It is the flourishing of households. It's the flourishing of organic biological households and those households coming together to be the household of God. And so here it starts off with this family where God was hidden, but there's hope. God is my consolation. And so Nehemiah had, um, he, he was, he's going to return in these first um, few uh, verses open up, and, and it says uh, in, in verse 2, and I asked concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem, and they said to me, the remnant is there in the province who had survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. And then you see Nehemiah's burden. Verse 4, it says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah inquires about those that were back in Jerusalem, and he sees that the, the condition is deplorable, and there's a burden that comes upon him because the state of the place of worship is nearly desolate and the people are in a difficult place. Nehemiah has a burden and he goes to prayer. Um, We need to be people of prayer. We need to be men of prayer. I'm, I'm thankful for all the things that are happening 
for men at Northbridge when you look at the connect events. Those are great things. Perhaps two of the most important things are that, that men that you attend a small group and you study God's word and you pray there and that men gather together to pray. You see, the, the, the struggle here is, is not that, that there's a burden that Nehemiah has. The burden isn't your struggle. The burden that you have on you in your day-to-day isn't the problem. The, the place that you take it is the problem. Where do you take your burdens? Where do they go? When you're distraught, when you're stressed, when you're, you have anxiety, where do you take your burdens? We see in the character of Nehemiah, where does he go? He takes his burden in prayer to God. He, he commits to prayer. Now, Nehemiah is not, he's, he's, he's not um, a vocational pastor. He's not a prophet. If you look down towards the end of the chapter, the chapter ends, now I was the cupbearer to the king. Let me just say this about the cupbearer to the king. He's an ordinary dude. He's just a regular guy working a job. And this chapter here is his prayer, but it's his calling. And we won't get into his prayer this morning because we're going to move through the book. But there is a calling, I believe, that all of us have. And you say, well, you're a pastor. You have a vocational calling. Yes, but we all have a calling. And, and our calling is the worship of God. What are we doing for the worship of God? What you're going to see through this book as you work through it, and many of you are working through it in your small groups, is you're going to see this phrase pop up over and over again, this idea of remember and God remembering. And and as you look at that, what does Nehemiah want God to remember? He He wants God to remember the work that has been done in order that God's people may worship. I think that's significant. Because you're going to get to the end of your life and you're going to say, what are my accomplishments? Actually, there's a big setback in Nehemiah at the end. We won't quite get there to where he, they, they have this great revival and then they backslide. And Nehemiah's like, God, just remember the work that I've done. Nehemiah's not proud. He understands, he's focused. He has a calling and so do you and I. You know, we, we, might, all, we might be cupbearers. Right? In, in a lot of ways, like, you know, take the over spiritualization out of being a pastor. And basically, I teach and care for people. Right? And you have a description as well of what you do, but we all have a calling. And that is to worship God, to proclaim who He is. It's a calling that all that we have. Are you burdened for that calling? You see, the, the church, I, I believe that, um, that we are headed into more change. Um, we sat this week and trained pastors. We had, and by the way, um, God be, be gracious to you and bless you. You blessed eight churches, multiple pastors in two days of training here at Northbridge. You made that possible. They were encouraged, but I also got to listen to pastors um, talk about what the church has been through. And some of the struggles, we work through the book of 2 Timothy, um, which we will go through, um, in which Paul tells Timothy, and as he's dying, that Timothy, um, it's not if hard times come, it's when hard times come, here's what you need to do. And so I got to listen to pastors just share about what their churches are going through, what their people are going through, to hear their heartache and heartbreak for their people. And there is a winnowing that is taking place in in the church Um, here, I think all across America, where um, it is 
it, it, is, it is heartbreaking um, because people are making, they, the, the gospel is at, at the forefront, but people are making other things central issues. And there's, e- there's ease because of the, the place that we're in, because of the pandemic that we're, that we're dealing with, to step out of the household of God. Um, people are making issues that are secondary, primary. I can remember when I was young and just um, starting ministry, I had helped plant a church, but I was going into full-time ministry and, um, in, as a, an associate pastor. And I, I drove a pickup truck. Um, and and that's, that's a good thing. I drove, drove a pickup truck. But I can remember one church leader coming to me and saying, you know, I don't think I can ever follow a leader who drives an import. You see, the problem, it was a Toyota. It wasn't a Ford. wasn't a Chevy. wasn't a Dodge. And... That was an issue for that man. It was an issue. He made it an issue. He reminded me of it. There would be things that would come up in meetings, and he would say, well, I don't know. He, he drives an import. <laughs> you know. Now, I use that because I could bring up other things, but then I know that people would get upset because things are really tense and tentative right now. People are making secondary things, primary things. And see, what, what here, what, what Nehemiah is saying, there's a primary thing. We've got to be careful what we make primary and what we make secondary. The test of fellowship in the church is the calling of God to the gospel. That's it. That's what we're about. That's what Nehemiah is about. And look what happens, okay? So he responds. He's the, he's the cupbearer. And um, God's... God's blessed him. He's put him in a position. Nehemiah knows that there are, there are a significant amount of assets that are needed in order to accomplish this, this goal. There needs to be a, a treasure chest. He's rebuilding the temple, but what he's going to have to do is rebuild a people. Worship doesn't happen unless the people are in it. But nonetheless, he, he needs funds. And so chapter 2, he actually goes to the king, and, and um, it's in verse Eight, it says, and the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of God was upon me. He needed significant assets. Significant assets. And then Nehemiah is a, a he's an excellent administrator. Um, he goes, he's also a discerning administrator. N- notice that he says in, in later in the chapter that um, beginning in verse 9, that he does this inspection and he goes through um, Jerusalem and he does it at night. He doesn't tell anyone. Look at verse 16 of chapter 2. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, and the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. He, 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 he demonstrates a requisite level of administrative skills, and he holds his cards close to his chest. Like, people need to know some things, but they don't need to know everything. And I think there's some lessons there, but we won't go into all of those. But notice verse 17, what he does say. He does say, I said to them, you see the trouble you are in and how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision And I told them the hand of God that had been upon me for good and also the words the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. 
So they strengthen their hands for the good work. Oh, what does he do? He paints a vision, right? He puts a vision. He puts a vision, a, a goal out in front of them. And notice the goal there. The goal, what he, what he doesn't say is, like, it's going to be great. You know, the temple's going to be rebuilt, and this is what it's going to. He gives them a vision of the next step, and that's an important part of vision. Right? We need to see, I mean, it's not described here, but I think it's implied here that, yes, the temple needs to be rebuilt, but the vision is for what needs to happen next. A wall. I mean, come on now. I mean, walls are not fun to build. You know, like, I, I want to build something. I want to build a fountain. I want to build a tower. I want to build a temple. I want to build... No, it's a wall. Now, that's important for security, and you know, but, but a wall is, it just seems like a functional thing. What does a wall have to do with worship? Well, it has to do everything with worship. It was the first step, and he gives them a vision for worship, but he gives them a vision for the first step. And then notice here what happens immediately. Uh, through this, we're going to see that Nehemiah has to deal with conflict over and over and over and over again. Listen, if you, you get tired of conflict, you'll get tired of Christianity because you read the whole New Testament and what is it the book filled with? Start with the Gospels, read through the history of the church, and you're going to see a lot of stuff on conflict management. And we'll get into the test, but it is Sanballat and Tobiah immediately mentioned there. And, and then they're going to be mentioned a whole lot more in further chapters. But notice what happens next is that he begins to assemble a team. We don't build a wall around a city with just a few people. Notice he doesn't go out and hire engineer consultants and a marketing team and professionals. I think it's describing, this is where we look at households. Households here. Because who builds the wall? You, you can look in the app and... and, and uh, the message is, is, is dumbly titled, Building Better Teams. Well, it was, it was titled that early in the week, and I came to realize that that's not it, that the word household is, is right. Because, you see, what we have in the church is we have households. They're, it's different, right? If households are dysfunctional, right, if they are overly directional, what do you have on this side? You have a cult, Right? If they're overly directional, you have a cult. We don't want to become that. Right? If households are overly professional, right? we have one particular task and they're organized. And they're, what do we have? We have a corporation. Right? I, I want to speak to people who really understand households. Farmers get this. Right? Farmers get this. Households get this. Like You probably... How many of you spent time raking leaves the last couple of days? Okay, almost everybody in here, right? Are you guys professional leaf rakers? Well, you might think so after the last couple of days. My neighbor across the street is a professional leaf raker. I, we laughed at him in the morning when he had his blower and he was going like this on the tree and the leaves were coming down. By the end of the day, there wasn't a single leaf on the tree. But professional leaf rakers are not what households do. They're actually not what most farmers do either. What do you do when you're a farmer or you're a household? What do you do? You do a little of everything. 
you do a little of everything, right? In order to maintain a household, what do you got to have a cook, right? How many professional chefs do we have? How many of you eat at home? Okay, like all the, right? And how, how many professional plumbers do we have? I know we got one. He's playing drums for us. But, but do you do plumbing? I do. Start early in the morning when all the stores are open. Don't start on a, like, Sunday evening, right? Give yourself plenty of time, plenty of money, because you'll make a lot of trips. Right? We do a little of That's a, look at teams in households are messy. Because look at, look at this chapter. First, notice where the team starts with. The high priest rose up with his brothers and priests, and they built the sheep gate and consecrated and set its doors. It began with what? It began with the religious leaders. The work began with the religious leaders. Worship always begins with the leadership. And look where they worked. The sheep gate was like the weakest point. If you understand the city of Jerusalem, it is the weakest, most difficult place to defend. That's where they began, but they consecrated it and set its doors. Right? So this is a guide for good teams within a household. And let me just tell you, teams within a household are messy. You'll see this. So it says, the sons of Hassaniah, verse 3, built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors. And it goes through, and you're like, why is this list here? Well, it's telling us who's doing the work. Here's the short answer. Everybody's doing the work. Everybody's doing well, maybe everybody. It says next to them were the Tekoites in verse 6. Now, the Tekoites, it says they repaired. They're mentioned a couple of times. So they were here and they were there doing the work, but the nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Is there a little tension in your household when somebody's not doing the work? Now, we, Mimi's in the service here. We teased yesterday because we were all out working. And she was sleeping all day. Well, she works third shift. <laughs> but we were teasing. But look, you get it. Like when somebody's not doing the work, there's a little bit of tension in the household. Well, there were those that weren't doing the work, right? And, and, and look um, in verse 7. You had the men of Gibeon. Notice that it's the men are leading. Now, I'm not going to go into this um, because I think there are going to be some that say, oh, it's that patriarchy again. Um, and that's, you know, all the Old Testament, New Testament, all that patriarchy. We're going to actually, the first and second Timothy are going to address some of those issues. But I want you to note that the men are leading. Okay, men, note that. We'll get into that. Um, it, it says the men of Gibeon. So some are actually named and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor, the province beyond the river. Um, next to them, Uziel, the son of Harthiah. Notice goldsmiths were there. So some men are named, some are just groups of, of men, and, and, I'm, and, and there were women. Um, some are, you've got the goldsmiths out there. Goldsmiths working on the, the wall. And one of them, a perfumer. Wait a minute. You know, I could see the perfumer going, you know, it's not really in my Enneagram to be doing this work, I just make things smell nice. You know, I, you don't understand my strengths finders. Hard labor is not my top five. But no, they're all there. And they're all, they're all working. Notice this too, okay? We got the Bagley families, both Brad 
um, both Bagley's, both sets of, of, of Bagley's. Um, Halosheth, verse 12, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. So all the cousins, right? Together, you know, here's a guy who brings his daughters to do what? Hard labor and work on the, on the wall. It is everybody together. The Levites repaired, and, and there's brothers that repaired. You can go down through the chapter, and as you study this in your small groups together, um, n- notice that it is, you know, some just says the men of the surrounding areas repaired and built the wall. It was everyone, the, the temple servants. They were all together, and they are working. Some of them only worked on the wall opposite their house because it benefited them. Not everybody's going to serve with the right motives. It's a little messy. Not all the walls. I'm sure if you looked, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that's where the perfumers worked. (laughs) Lean in a little bit, but it'll do. That's how work gets done in the household. Um, Listen, I think they're right when those that that look at the future say, you know, that the next is a new orthodoxy, right, in that... Secular society will tolerate anything that's nominal. I don't care what you say as long as you bow to these tenets of secular. But, but if the dogma lives loudly in you, it's going to take not just you, but it's going, to take a, it's going to take a household. It's going to take multiple households together to get the work done. It's not going to be about simply your household. It's going to be about the people of God. What, is, what, what work are you doing so that the worship of God might continue? Now notice what happens next in the story. The next two chapters um, are about opposition. When Sanballat, verse, um, chapter 4, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews and he said this in the presence of his brothers and in the, arm, in the army of Samaria. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Do they think they're really going to worship, right? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? So you had Sanballat and then Tobiah the Ammonite. So there's, there's six tests. And, and a big chunk of the center of this book is about opposition. You think about that. The real estate of the book, and you have four through six of 13 chapters simply detailing the opposition. It's not just here. It's mentioned before. It's mentioned after this. Um, so these tests, first is criticism in verses one through six. And then you have gossip in verses 7 through 23 of, of chapter 4. Um, then you have these draining complaints in chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. They were important things. They were important things um, that, that were happening. What, what was happening is the Israelites weren't following what? The Old Testament law. They were enslaving each other. And because they didn't follow the law, it led to all kinds of difficulties. And, and Nehemiah has to respond to these, to these things. Meanwhile, he's got like a long-term goal, which is what? It is the worship. But he, meanwhile, he's doing what? He's building a, a wall 
and he's got all of this resistance. Now, where is the resistance? Is the resistance inside or outside the wall? Well, it's a little of both. It's a little of both, if we're, if we're honest. But the outside, if we look at the text, what happens is the outside stirs up what? The inside. Right? It's the ideas from the outside that stir up the people of the inside that actually create the most resistance. But it's also within Nehemiah. He goes through a time of personal temptation, verses 14 through 18. He could have lived in a particular way, but notice his character. You study that. He could, have, he could have taxed and benefited, but he was generous. It was a time of personal temptation. We'll see all of these things that resist. It's inside of us. It's the ideas that come from the outside that are not from God and his word that will stir up the people of God, that will create resistance. It is the people outside that are, that are the threat that, and, and the, the ideas that are against the worship of God, and that's why they're building this wall. But it's difficult. It's extremely difficult, and there's work to get done. Those aren't the only things. Chapter 6 details slander, intimidation, and even threats. And remember I said um, the remembers that that are through the, the book, before, um, if you actually go back to verse 14 of chapter 4, it says, I look and I rose and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. And here comes one of those key remembers. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and do what? Remember the Lord. This is a key instruction here in the text. Remember the Lord and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Fight for your households. The church, the people of God are called together to do what? To remember the Lord and fight for the household of God. And who's that? Who does he point to? Your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your households. We are in a day, in moving to a day of greater oppression against households. Your household and the household of God. But God's called us together to do what? To fight for households. At the end of this, there is uh, another remember. At the end of this section, um, there is another remember. Um, and it is the remember these that have opposed Remember them as well, O Lord, and the Lord will not forget. In verse 14 of chapter 6, it says, Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to the things that they did, and also the prophetess, Nodadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Hey, God, don't forget them, and he won't. Our God remembers, so remember the Lord. Now, what happens? Uh, moving through and just bringing this um, nearly to a close, um, in chapter 7, we see the completion of, of or actually the end of 6, the wall actually is finished. It, it doesn't talk about beyond the listing of who is working. What, what the book does is, is the story goes along and it tells about the, the, the resistance and then the wall is finished. <laughs> I think that's an interesting way to tell the story. 
I would want to tell all the work that people are doing and what was happening. But God doesn't tell it that way. He tells about the resistance you and I are going to face. And then the work gets done. And then we see chapter 7, this organization, a list of people. Why was the wall built? Well, now you have a list of people. These are the people who have returned now. And it's showing that this is the people of God. And chapter 7 is demonstrating to the Jewish people and to us that God is making good on his promise. He's bringing his people back. There are people from all these groups of people that are included. No one in a representative nature is left out. But what we notice about this is that there's not very many people there. And yet, here's what happens, chapter 8. And this is where the passion of the book, this is where the story turns. And, and it says, and all the people were gathered as one man in the square before the water gate. And what happens after this is that the word of God is read and the people are blessed. I, I want you to notice what happens. The word of God is read and there is such a hunger. Verse seven talks about this, seven, eight, and nine. Verse eight, they read from the book, from the, the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood its reading People are hungry, and there's preaching that's taking place. They're explaining the, the book, and people stand, and they listen. But there's not just this hunger. There is, there is conviction. There's conviction. In verse 9, it says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord our God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Oh, that's key. See, they had deep conviction, but what was he reminding them of? What was the word of God in the Old Testament saying? The joy of the Lord is your strength. There's a promise. And God's going to make good on the promise. He's brought people back. You see, this, this is the passion. It's, it's worship. And so what, what did people do? They stopped their mourning. And, and that is a promise of God that he's going to turn our mourning into joy. But listen, there's a lot of work to be done before that takes place. And we've got to listen to the word and know that it's going to be resisted. And it's going to be external. It's going to be internal. It's going to be in you. But God has overcome. After that, there is a time of quiet. Be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And the people went their way to eat and drink and sent portions and made great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And then they actually, in the rest of that chapter, it's a, it's a feast proclaimed by the Old Testament, the Feast of Booths that they observe we notice in the next chapter what happens is real change in their lives. It isn't just worship that happens together in a room like this, but we actually see in chapter 9 that households are transformed. Look at verse 2. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and their iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in one place and read from the book of the law of the Lord of their God for a quarter of the day in another quarter and they made confessions in the worship of the law the law um, and the worship of the Lord their God they their households began to change 
In verse 6, it says, here's a key phrase in this chapter, you are the Lord alone. You see, something's changing um, in their lives. It would do you good in this week's study to study that chapter and look at how things are changing in their households. But for the sake of time, look at the end of the chapter. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of the princes, our Levites, and our priests. What did they do? They said, we're going to change, and we're going to live by this, and we're going to write it down, and we're going to sign it, right? So they made a covenant. They made a covenant agreement. We mirror this today in what we do in church membership. It's a covenant agreement, and we say, we're going to do this, and we're going to do this. Why? Because we're forced to? No, because we understand who the Lord is, and we're the people of God, and he's shaping us, and we want to be together in this. One spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We're together. You see, in chapter 10 is pivotal, and we'll end telling the story. We won't move through 11, 12, and 13. We'll end here. Is that what happens is you see in the beginning of chapter 10 all the names, the representative names of the people listed there. So there's people, and they made worship a priority. The rest of the priests, look at verse 28. Um, yeah, 28 of chapter 10. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and and enter into a curse and oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe to do all the commands of the Lord our, the Lord, our Lord and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take daughters for our sons. And if the people of the land bring goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We will also take ourselves the obligation of the yearly third, a part of the shekel. You, you can go on and you can read, like they're saying, these are the things we will do as households to honor the Lord. And then notice at the end, we will not neglect the house of our Lord. We will not neglect the house of our Lord. And we can look at this, and this tells us the story of God. It's, this tells us the story of God. It tells us the story of God in the people of God in the Old Testament as he's shaping them. It tells us also the story of Jesus. Because we look at this, Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection on the cross is to do what? To sanctify, to make holy, to set apart a people of God. And he did the work. He did the suffering. It's also the story of the New Testament people of God. Because if you go, and I have written in the margin of my Bible, Revelation 22. Go back to the end of your Bible and look at this. And we'll close here. As we in the room turn to communion and the giving of our tithes and offerings, look at, look at the goal. What is the whole goal? Remember I started with that question what are you doing so that the, what, what kind of work are you doing so that the worship of God will continue? 
right? How will you respond to God's call to do the work for God's people to worship him? What happens in the end? Verse one, and the angel showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month and the leaves were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be upon their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp or light or sun For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. The goal is worship. God's told the story through Nehemiah and through his people in the Old Testament. He told the story again in Jesus and his desire is to continue to tell the story to the world for the saving of the world through you and I today. May Nehemiah be a lesson to us. May the Spirit of God work through this story to convict us and to help us to get to work so that God may be worshipped. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the word of God this morning. And as we move now to a time of reflection, I pray that as we come into communion and giving of our tithes and our offerings, that we will consider the work that you have done so that we might worship you and declare who you are to the nations. Lord, we know there there will be resistance even today as there always has been. Uh, Strengthen us. Um, Make us as one person in Christ Jesus, having that same mind as you had, as you lived out your life and went to the cross. Um, Strengthen us with your joy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.